0: Hello and welcome to the Dissidents podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Liberal Values. This is where we talk about how we can strive for a world in which freedom and reason are at the forefront of all human society. In this week's podcast, Elizabeth Spivak and Mike Burke talk with Wilfred Riley about the nature of racism in the United States, including health and learning outcomes, affirmative action, as well as the culture of fear currently engulfing Western societies. Hello, everybody. And today we're joined by Wilfred Riley, um, author of Hate Crime Hope, um, which is a book that looks at the statistics for hate crimes and most recently, uh, Taboo, um, both of which I've read and enjoyed very much. I think Taboo is about kind of things that are very true that you can back up quite confidently with lots and lots of empirical evidence um, or things that are quite obviously false. and again, that you can back up quite easily with with, with lots of evidence, um, but you're not allowed to speak about. Um, certainly, I've had that experience of pointing things out and being mobbed and saying, oh, my God, how can you suggest such a thing? It's like, well, the, the evidence is not even controversial. It's all here. Um, I guess, how would, how would you recommend a person, let's say, in my position who wants to say something that is true, um, but gets mobbed by saying it? How would you recommend well, that deal uh,
1: with my, it? my recommendation and this might be easier for me because I have tenure in a job where my you know, primary role is thinking and, you know, my other job, I suppose, is Internet pundit or something like that. So it might be sure. easier for me to talk than for an investment banker or something. But my answer is, is essentially just to say uh, what is real. Like when mm-hmm. I worked in the business world, I worked on uh, sales floors, bullpens, a couple that probably meet the trading floor cutoff, And we use the term uh, PA, professional aggression. Like if you know what you're doing, just go, go ahead and say the thing that you know is accurate. Be very polite, but you know, confidently defend what you say. And that, that's the approach that I try to take in my, uh, in my writing. And I, th- I think that there's, there's really no other way to, to have conversations. The, I guess the exception there would be that if people are being just purely bad faith, I mean, on a Twitter and similar social media, I generally just block people that bore or annoy me. I don't know these people. I have no feelings for them. So I don't really feel like engaging in a conversation with someone who might try to get me fired or something like that. I actually just remove them from the point where they can see my identifying information. So I'd, I'd recommend doing that, too. But in general, just... If you're talking about something like uh, one of the points made in the book Taboo, which is that there are a very small number of people, especially unarmed black men that are shot by police, um, if you have the numbers at your hand, I don't, I don't see any reason you wouldn't just say that. The, the touchier the topic is, I think maybe a good piece of advice would be the more technical you should be or the more fact-laden you should be. So when it comes to policing, I rarely, when I'm involved in debate, say something like, well, the justices is of Israel is not racist. I, I don't think it is, but I don't really care. I'll just say, I mean, you can compare the number of people that are involved in this sort of interaction with law enforcement to the black and white populations of the country multiplied across the crime rate, and you find that the the numbers are almost exactly what you'd expect. So that's kind of a rambling answer. But I think the way to engage is if you're in a situation with people that you're going to bother to surround yourself with. You kind of have to say things that you know to be true. And one uh, final point there, I think you'll find most of the time that you're not alone. I've started running these very large in polls recently. I, I got my social media following up to about 150,000 across platforms, mostly on Twitter. And I still have my academic links to SurveyMonkey. And so I suppose anyone could, could get these in an hour. But so I've asked groups of up to 20,000 people some of these questions about modern taboos. Like, my social media audience, which certainly leans male and quote-unquote bro-y, but also includes everyone's (laughs) feminist girlfriend, was asked, you know, do you believe that some women have penises? And I expected there to be about a 30% response rate, like, yeah, sure, it's a conventional thing. It was a 2% across men and women. So it was just straight up, the emperor is naked. No, I don't believe that some women have nine-inch cocks, excuse the language. Like, no, I don't believe this. I refuse to say that so very very often you have a situation where there's sort of a small red guard of people and i'm absolutely sure this is true on kind of the evangelical right as well i've spent less time oh. there but that kind of set the standard like this this healthy discussion of sex or finances or whatever it can't happen and everyone else then stops having the conversation and thinks that most people agree with the red guardsmen. never true dri-
0: i mean the data seems to suggest that i um, mean if you look at um political affiliations with the alt-right and the kind of extreme critical social justice left I mean it's anything between eight to twelve percent of the population in the U.S. overall and yet the critical social justice left seems to be so dominant they create this kind of illusion that they're everywhere and they can call you out and they can cancel you um when in fact all the evidence would suggest that they're are an extreme minority um I-
2: I'm interested to know. So I'm at a university. um, You know, Mike is teaching part time at a university, um, but he's in Tokyo. I'm in New England. And um, I would say, you know, taboo is um, maybe a a less inflammatory word. I, I would say, you know, like it's criminal to say some of the things that are in your in your book where I am. Okay, as evidenced by you know, uh, me being canceled and my uh, husband actually not getting tenure, uh, because he, you know, stood up for me. Um, So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a criminal offense, (laughs) in a way. Um, So I'm kind of interested. um, uh, I worked for I actually worked for Wilberforce University in in Ohio, I'm interested in what it's like at an HBCU. You know, what, what kinds of, you know, is it taboo? Still?
1: Well, that's one of the things that's interesting. And I, I suppose at some point, you know, I've been friendly with two of our last three college presidents. I just didn't know the other one. So I suppose at some point, you know, a current president could call me at his office and say, you know, could you could you stop saying this about our institutions? But uh, in my experience, actually, uh, historically black colleges and in fact, minority led institutions in general And bear in mind, this is now more than 20 percent of the businesses in the USA, counting all black, Asian, et cetera, at any rate, tend to be far less woke than upper middle Mm -hmm. class white institutions. And I think that's because there's no guilt to get rid of. I mean, if you I was the uh, faculty ombudsman for KSU for some time, and when I went to our executive council meetings, it was probably two thirds wealthy black guys. Mm -hmm. So it would have been very difficult for us to say, oh, we're not making progress in this meeting. You know, white man did it. So we, absent that, I mean, things tend to become much more functional. I mean, we're a black institution. We have black Republicans, probably 15% of the population. We have black radicals. It, it's much less of an issue than it would be if I taught at Bowdoin. I can say that with extraordinary confidence. So, no, I'm like, if I were a racist, interestingly enough, it would be a significant problem for me. But sure. I, yeah, I mean, I'm a fairly pro-black black guy who used to be an athlete and walks around in tweed jackets on a college campus. I mean I I've, I've, I've had very few uh social encounter problems, let's say. And we'll see if that continues, but the the sort of purple-haired shrieking, we don't have a lot of that because we don't have a lot of purple-haired shriekers. I mean in southern <laughs> schools, black schools, Greek life's very big all that. Positives and negatives, but a lot less of what we're describing than say Claremont Colleges.
0: I'm yeah. a huge tweed aficionado as well. Um in, in Japan we have lots of um, American Americans academics
1: America. <laughs>
0: yeah, we have uh, a lot of Harris tweeds my favorite we have a lot of uh, American right. academics that, that come over and what I found is that the um, african-american Hispanic Asian American uh, academics I, I have not met one that doesn't despise the woke thing and that all of the woke cancellation is being led by highly privileged white women actually okay, that's that, that's That's my anecdotal experience. I'm not claiming that that bears out in the data necessarily, Um, but that seems to be the case, certainly superficially.
1: Yeah, I actually refrained from saying exactly that for a little bit. I certainly wouldn't define myself as like the male feminist type. But I mean, like, Mm -hmm. you know, women take some heat in political movements. So I ignored the obvious for a bit. But yeah, if you look at the data, there's one specific group of people that's woke in the USA. And yes, it's uh, upper middle class, college educated and beyond Caucasian women. I mean, this is this has been revealed over and over and over (laughs) again in terms of who supports political correctness. It's this very specific demographic. Now, one thing that I've noticed that's interesting is that black and Indian American yanks, uh, especially female, but not always, as you get high enough in the class structure, sometimes move into this as well. So, I mean, like when you talk about Sayira Rao or Regina Jackson or something like that, it's a, Maxine Waters over the past couple of years, AOC. It would be hard to imagine more annoyingly woke people. But I mean, these people are all, you know, in Congress or the Senate or they're millionaires. So, I, to me, to some extent, I mentioned guilt earlier. i don't I don't have a theory ready to go at my fingertips, but there's obviously an element of compensation here. I mean, mm-hmm. wokeness is a guilt reaction among the upper class, lower upper class, often attempted, often accompanied by an attempt to consign yourself into some kind of oppressed category. So, the group of people we're describing, like beyond college educated, upper middle and lower upper class, especially female, also overlap very heavily with the group of people that are likely to describe themselves as non-binary, for example. Um, I'm a trans dimmy boy, the sort of things you hear on any college campus. And I mean, the one obvious reason for that is if you're just a rich kid, I don't know why this is more common among women than men, but if you're just a rich kid from Cleveland, you don't really have any victim points in these academic games. So if you begin championing everyone else and becoming like an ally of the Somali-American cause or whatever, and then you yourself discover that you are attracted to all 73 possible genders and, you know, put yourself in a, a different victim group, then all of a sudden you're no longer just well-adjusted suburban individuals. So that, that has to play some role.
2: And even if you are, it's a way to participate in the narrative, you know, even if even if you don't, Uh, you know, join one of the intersectional groups, you know, uh, you still get an opportunity to participate in the social narrative by, you know, supporting those groups. And, uh, and I, I feel like that's a lot of what's happening in my department, which is made up mostly not all not fully, but mostly of white uh, females so uh, psychologists by this you know psychology yeah. professors by the way. so um, I definitely wanted to talk about the uh, what the affirmative action you do talk about a, a, a little bit about affirmative action in taboo and um, and so I wanted to uh, you know kind of pick your brain about uh, how you feel about the the latest Supreme Court ruling.
0: Yeah, another taboo.
1: Uh, in general, so first of all, I I feel you know I'm pro merit. I'm on the center right politically. In general, I'm pro. Um, I've always been less irritated by affirmative action than a lot of people I know. Uh, partly because I'm in the higher education sector, and I mean, most students at good selective schools don't just get in. I mean, there was a, and I, I think it's a real problem. I'm not defending this, but I mean, there's that famous recent piece a couple years back that found that. Among white students, meaning you've already eliminated the 30% of students that are there due to affirmative action. Harvard was 16% black last year, which is astonishing when you think about test scores and so on. But among the remaining Caucasian students, I guess it would be about 60% of them, but 43% of the student body was made up of legacies, children of faculty members, staff members, which would include all the assistant deans of gender diversity and so on and coaches of which the ivy league has a surprising number as a non-scholarship division one double a conference in be humble opinion but i mean those people um athletes themselves so on. i mean this was half the student body so the basic idea of affirmative action like they're letting in these unqualified hispanics i mean the majority of the student body is made up of people that wouldn't qualify against a pure merit regime that's true in any Ivy. That's true in about half the Big Ten. It's a just an accepted, real fact. So I've I've never been outraged about affirmative action on you know how dare they do this lines. You know when you see someone's name on the men's quadrangle, there's a pretty good chance that his son or daughter will be going to the university as well. Um, but with that said, you know uh, positive in many ways. I actually think that a big part of the positive impact here will be felt by minority kids who are so dramatically mismatched with these schools. I mean, I wrote, a, and it looks like both both of you guys might comment here in a, a second, but I like I wrote a piece about this topic for National Review, and I looked up the graduation rates by race, by institution, and a lot of them were just insane. Um, as a U of I man, I took a, almost some schadenfreude at um, University of Michigan. There's a 21-point gap between black and white, not even black and Asian, but on uh, matriculants to the university in terms of graduation. And it's not 180. I mean, it's that's the state school, however good. So it's like 85 and 63. I mean, so many of these people that have you know, perfectly solid SATs of you know, 1090 or something like that, who were admitted to the University of Michigan's engineering school were just failing out. Mm-hmm. You know, just deer being knocked off the road. And this went on year after year after year. You know, people, Stephen Carter in Reflections of an Affirmative Action Baby, I believe, said, you know, many people are there just long enough to spice up the admissions brochure. And that that's been true for a very long time. And now those same kids are going to go to like northern Kentucky. So, I, yeah, I, they're going to go
2: to good schools yeah. where, you know, they're they're probably going to have more opportunities to shine, I, I, I think. Yeah, they did but, a, um, a valedictorian project, the Boston Globe did a deep dive, similar kind of thing, all the valedictorians in the state and, um, and you know, followed them. And, you know, what you're talking about is, you know, sadly, I mean, uh, this is exactly what happened. I mean, they were the valedictorian, they got into really good schools and they were completely, un- you know, they didn't have the family support, they didn't have the social support and they weren't as prepared. They might've been the valedictorian at a school, you know, where um you know there wasn't all of the ap courses or you know the, some of the opportunities and unfortunately really smart kids who just didn't have you know a, you know what it took to complete uh, to, not, to get through they may not yeah, even that,
1: be that's That's the whole point, just very, very briefly, of objective testing. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the valedictorian from a school in Roxbury in Boston, or for that matter, in Caucasian South Boston, got a 980 on the SAT. So if you say, well, this person is the valedictorian of an entire sizable high school, they should go to Yale. If you actually drop that person off in New Haven, I mean, the average uh, board score on that campus, I believe, fourteen seventy. So, yeah, they're going to get absolutely slaughtered. I mean, among other things, that's a competitive environment, and it's supposed to be. I mean, Big Ten's a notch below the ivies, but, I mean, I went to University of Illinois Law School. Like, people were sleeping in the library. Like, it's you're kind of supposed to do that. You want your doctors and lawyers and so on to be competent. So, yeah, I would imagine it was a bloodbath for a lot of those kids, and it's going to be much better for them to go to, like, a regional UMass campus and graduate and then go on to become doctors because they right. now have a 3.5 GPA. They now have those skills that have developed over four more years of training and so on down the line.
0: Right, that was the point I was gonna make, that, that you, you might have people who are genuinely intellectually gifted, but come from a background in which they haven't had many books in the home, maybe haven't had a father in the home, haven't had that kind of academic support that kids that tend to come from more privileged backgrounds do. So they go to a, a school that's not kind of at the elite level because they're not ready yet, then they get ready in their undergrad, undergraduate degree. And then for a master's degree or PhD, then they can go to the elite level. You know, They get the, the training that they need to move on to that point.
1: But no, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, when it comes to IQ and similar things, I'm almost totally a culturalist. I think that, I mean, there are obviously genetic gaps between individuals and so on, But when you look at large groups, I mean, one of the lowest scoring uh, test-taking populations in the USA is Caucasian Hispanics. I mean, there, there are practical reasons for that, like lack of fluency in the English language. So the more time you spend taking tests in your secondary language, the better you'll do on them. I mean, none of this is rocket science. Like people have seriously looked at the Asian study advantage over just isolate whites out, where most people don't argue they're huge, you know, haplotypical factors. The, the advantage is caused by the fact Asians study about you know, 210% as much as Caucasian Americans. So if you have additional time at a pretty good university to train yourself, yes, of course you'll do better. And the SAT gaps, by the way, are, or any board test you might want to use the ACT, the MCAT are extremely large. I mean, this was talked about in the article I'm referencing as well. I mean, and both of you guys know this as educators, but if you're doing admissions at a typical college, you basically have three applicant populations. I mean, you've got black Americans, Hispanics and natives at probably at you know, Southern Illinois University, around the national median of 950 on the test, whites are about a thousand, almost always exactly in that range, and Asians hit 1250 last year. I believe it was 12. Or, no. I believe it was last year, 1249. So you've got 950, 1,000, and 1250. It, without giving admissions advantages roughly the size of those gaps to members of the groups that are underperforming. You're not going to have a student body that, quote unquote, looks like America at the typical good research to university. So you can either accept that or better yet, accept that for now and try to target funding at schools and underperforming areas mm-hmm. and so on. Or you can just admit kids with these giant gaps and kind of stick your fingers in your and ear and, your fingers, and, yeah. Ignore, yeah. and just hope.
2: Yeah. And, and yeah. It,
1: it ignore trends like why are all these engineers moving into black studies? Like things you see at almost every college. Just you know, shut your eyes and make a humming noise to yourself, and hope it all goes away.
2: Yeah. So, can we talk about um, uh, COVID learning losses? And you see some headlines that say, you know, this demonstrates that it's, you know, that it shows reveals racism um other you know I, I mean then maybe you read that's what the headline will say and then you read deeper in and you can't actually find it i don't know if that's just to get people to uh, to read the, read the article um and maybe that's more new england you know where i'm seeing it uh, more but there's definitely uh over overtones of you know it's revealing racism i actually also saw um that uh uh death rates for um, women, you know, in pregnancy, um, are climbing. And, um, you know, it's, they claim disproportionate black, which then uh, uh, disproportionately black women are dying, uh, either in childbirth or pre postnatal. And that it's I mean, it's front page on the Boston Globe, you know, racist uh, health care system. So Maybe they have the same in the
0: UK, by the way. Um, yeah. <clears throat> we have to give resources to black people more than white people because of racism within the house system, that's quite a big thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, so what do I think about this? I mean, so first of all, I think that almost all these claims of racism, and this is kind of my dinner speech talking line, but are just very poorly made univariate claims. What you almost invariably find is that when you look at something like black women are more likely to die during the third trimester of pregnancy, it's simply a raw figure and generally, by the way, a very low figure. I mean, the percentage of American or British women that actually die during childbirth or pregnancy itself, you guys might correct this, but it's on the order of one in 500 or 600, something like that. But you have the low initial gap and you have an additional gap between the races and the claim is simply for some reason i stumbled over that part but the claim is simply well this is racial prejudice we found racial prejudice via the existence of this disparity disparities are in fact you know get out of here soul and freedman discrimination <laughs> revealed um in general in every paper i've seen when i've seen people myself but a uh, Sally Satel with some of the medical and psychological stuff, uh, June O'Neill, the economist, Tom Sowell, obviously, Roland Fryer. Literally every time I've seen skilled methodologists adjust for very obvious things, like differences in age and crime rate, those gaps have vanished. Not simply closed from, you know, 70% in terms of elevated maternal mortality risk, to 45%, but close to almost nothing. I mean, the, the key variable there would probably be obesity. I'm not, I'm not an expert on that research, but I mean, black women are many, many times more likely to be physically out of shape than white women of the same age. Black women tend to have kids younger, tend to have more kids, tend to see doctors less, which ties into class rather than race. So unless you adjust for all of that stuff, you, you can't attribute the gap to racism people almost invariably do. And that's a big problem. And that's actually the entire pitch point for for example, Dr. Ibrahim Kendi, as you guys know, yeah, the argument is that if you see a gap between two large identity populations, the only two possible explanations are one genetic inferiority, essentially, if you cut through his kind of abstruse language, and two, racism, somewhere in the system, there's some inequity that we have to hunt out. And the reality is that that's just not true at all. I mean, there are all kinds of variables that actual social scientists would want to look at in almost every case that that doesn't cover. Uh, Regional differences in income and quality of life have a big effect on whites as being black, for example. In the USA, about 50% of African Americans and Hispanics, by the way, live in the South and the Southwest where wages and the like are lower as versus I think 16% of whites. But I mean, so you have this initial idea that's become very popular, but that's almost an illiterate idea. It's just not that intelligent. It- so,
0: so none of this is hard to get and it all yeah. seems pretty obvious, right? It, yes. it, you know, maybe if you're a 15 year old and you've just kind of stumbled into the world, maybe this stuff might be impressive, but as an adult, as a university teacher, none of this is hard to get and yet so many people don't get it. So how can you be somebody, and let me put another binary to you. How can you be somebody like an Ibram X. Kendi who, white people and loads of these prestigious institutions are bowing down to you and paying you all kinds of money. Yeah, oh, yeah. how racist, we're really sorry, and giving you everything that you want, both in terms of social status, money, everything. How can you have all of that, and then yet at the same time say that society is racist? I mean, it's either that he's really, really stupid, and he doesn't seem to be that stupid. I mean, when you hear him talk, he doesn't strike me as particularly bright. Um, But he doesn't strike me as weapons grade dumb enough not to get this um so it's either stupidity or bad faith or is there something i'm missing here well i i think
1: one thing you might be missing is that people are very very able to lie to themselves when there's substantial benefit to doing so i mean uh, i one of my favorite all-time findings from uh, your co-host discipline of psychology quantitative psych is that I believe it's ninety-five percent of men think they are good to excellent drivers, and ninety-eight. Oh yeah. Ninety-eight percent of men think they're good to excellent lovers. And the better, I, than, it's
2: called the better than average effect. Yes, yeah. yes. But yes. it was just
1: like I remember. It was actually a partner that I'm still friends with presented that to me, and I was like, "Well, I'm obviously both, but I don't know about all these other guys." <laughs> yeah. And we were, just, we we're just both kind of laughing, and it was like, "Well, really, is this like a real thing that men believe in?" It was, and there were similar things for women. Um, and now you're starting to see the reverse effect in the era of, you know, big screen, hard R cinema and rampant pornography. It's so on people. There's a trend on Twitter right now. Margot Robbie is ugly. This is the oh. actress that played uh, Barbie and Harley Quinn. Oh. Um, yeah, I mean, a head-up, model-level-looking person if you're into women. But, I mean, the all of these guys are comparing her to anime characters that don't exist and so on and saying, well, you know, as versus... Captain Marvel, I mean, she's, she's not that special. And these sort of things, that actually might be a little different from the point. But the 98, 95%, it's simply accurate. People tell themselves these stories all the time. So when I hear people that I honestly just think of as racial grifters talking, I mean, I do have the same question. Do they actually believe this? Or are they being disingenuous for money? It wouldn't surprise me at all if uh, Dr. Kendi, for example, had come to believe what he says by this point. Also, I mean, I'm not going to call another, you know, educated guy, a complete idiot, you know, this time on this broadcast. But I mean, like, Kendi actually has been very public about his uh, intelligence test scores. SAT, I think, was 1019. So his argument is that this indicates that these tests don't mean anything, (laughs) because obviously he has been declared a MacArthur genius by our society. And a cruel man might point out that there's another explanation. So... There's, there's an extreme possibility that that's about right. And so there's not a level of depth beyond what we're seeing. And Mike, in terms of your question, like, is, is this all there is? Is this, are people really just presenting this Methods 101 level stuff? Yes. I mean, that, that sort of claim, like there's a difference in maternal mortality between black and white women, and that proves racism. That is at the level of probably 95% of these claims in public mass media, probably I'd say 60% either of you guys might disagree, but in published academic papers. And that's one reason this is this isn't the primary thing I research in my actual discipline, by the way. Mm. But this is one reason I've started commenting on this using actual solid B plus I teach the class from my university, quantitative methods to say no, this is complete gibberish. Like if you adjust for age, uh, the modal average age for a black man's often notes 27 white man's 58, half this gap closes. And it it is surprising how rarely that's done. I I myself am interested in why.
2: I, I also think um, I was just to comment on you know like is that all there is or it, when I when you look at the um, you know the I actually sent you a link which you had already knew yep. about the Harvard data on the co you know the COVID learning losses and stuff. If you read down into the center of their in this case, I'm just looking at the the summary. Um, we also found that um, uh, what all this means is that the educational impacts of the pandemic were not driven solely by what was happening in schools. It was the disruption in children's lives outside of school that mattered. They are starting, you know, they're talking about some of the, the same things that you are. And they say, you know, it was not you know, it was not just school closures. It was not just race. It was, you know, it didn't matter if you were in a particular kind of school, it didn't matter if you were black or white or Hispanic, Mm -hmm. everybody suffered the same kinds of, of learning losses. And if you were in, you know, a more upper-class neighborhood, you still suffered losses, but she started out at a better uh, place. And so everybody shifted kind of. Um, And so, um, you know, when you read the, the title, you get the idea that it's, that this is indicating racism. When you read back down into it, it's, there's not so much. So I don't know if people, different people are, are promoting the research that, than those who've actually done the research sometimes.
0: So, so we've looked at kind of three motivations for, well not motivations, three reasons why people say silly things about race. Um, One of which is bad faith um one of which is just being stupid and the other one well not thinking, hit, things, oh, not, oh, not thinking oh no, 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 no. things okay, not, not thinking, thinking deep- deeply okay not thinking deeply i kind of think well no because when i was at i've been at some of the elite universities in the uk and i have met people who have really high iqs um but are effectively stupid because they, they don't think deeply about anything at all. Like, if you give them a problem, they can do it, but they, they never seem to, you know, so they'll do fine on a test and they'll do fine in class, but they'll never actually think deeply about anything at all. So, I mean, that I, kind I of- current... low
1: IQ might honestly just be a fair answer. That's, that's one of the options. I mean, that's certainly something you could propose. Like a lot of these guys are just pretty dumb. Like when you hear Ben Crump talk, he doesn't seem like a genius. And so a possibility.
0: And a third one would be just simply deluded. You know, just, you know, I don't know, academia is white supremacy, you know, the post-colonial study type stuff where they say that, you know, the scientific method has been there created for white people to oppress everybody else. And so therefore adhering to it is advancing whiteness. Um, But definitely within these people who make these arguments, including academics, there are genuine bad faith actors and quite a lot of them. And I'm not just talking about people who will deliberately go in and make up uh, a study and, and mess around with the data in order to prove a point. But there are actual academics who will cra- claim that they're victims of hate crimes, um, as you talk about in your book. I mean, maybe you could give us an example of something like that. Sure.
1: Well, if you don't mind, there there are a couple of different comments I'd make there. Uh, first of all, in terms of diluted, I think a better term when you're talking about seriously... Um, Pomo or social justice, serious Pomo or social justice believers would be religious. I mean, this is an analogy that's been made over and over again by people like John McWhorter. But again, when you blindly believe in a system, um, you know, the world is governed by unchangeable links of power relations controlled by this group. If you truly accept something like this, a lot of ideas can't really be thought about because they fall outside the set of parameters that you would find acceptable. Uh to give an example, I was once talking to a religious friend and they were going through all of these potential explanations for evil. How how there could be a god and yet evil in the world. And I said, aren't the two most obvious explanations that there is no god or that god is evil? And those are in fact the two most obvious explanations, but the person said, "Well, absolutely not, you heretic." coyote worshiping barbarian no those are not acceptable explanations absolutely false so similarly like if you are talking to what i think of as a ken deangelist about you know any of this stuff and you say for example one of the claims that you often hear since we're talking about test scores earlier is that test score gaps are due to racism if you say well no that's absolutely not true you know, the, among the highest scoring populations in the USA or Asian Americans or Indian dravins who are black-skinned, black immigrants who are black-skinned, so down the line, you'll come back into something else like, well, there must be bias from teachers against specifically black Americans, or any negative aspect of black culture must be the result of contemporary racism. Sometimes they'll, they'll accept that some of it might have come from past racism, but not from interaction with poor whites or pre-existing African culture or anything else. So, like, if you accept that the only possible causal framework for black misbehavior or whatever word you want to use, failure, struggle, all of these would be intensely rejected by all these people. But is racism, then most explanations for this fall by the wayside. One problem here, of course, is that failure and struggle aren't uniquely or even primarily black problems. So if you want to solve educational issues in, Acad- in Appalachia, You frequently find yourself using techniques that would also work very well in black communities that have identical board scores. But when you attempt to apply them there, even if it's something as simple as, you know, an intensely academic school for boys only, you run into all of these objections about, and I've experienced this, about not dealing with the core underlying root issue, which is racial bias. So I, I think delusion is not as good a word as religion or core belief might be a good one for political science. Um. Also, one quick point about uh, test scores, what, what I think about COVID learning loss. When I mentioned being a culturalist, I think that this is the ultimate evidence of something that I've said for years, which is that in, to an extremely significant extent, your score on intelligence or aptitude tests depends on how much of your life you spent doing the exact things on intelligence and aptitude tests. I mean, so these, are, these aren't magical skills. You're talking about plain geometry if you're looking at math. You're talking about verbal memorization, then utilization, so on down the line. So when the insane COVID lockdowns began, I think we're all from pretty good-sized cities, one of my obvious first impressions was if Chicago or Louisville is just shutting the schools, these kids are going to lose a year. Like, mm-hmm. you're going to see regression of X number of IQ and Nate points. And you did. I mean, and presumably, if you studied an extra four hours a day, you'd see a predictable boost of X number of IQ and Nate points. Again, as you both know, it's very hard to actually do real experiments like this, where you just take 2,000 people and make them, you know, read books for more hours a day than you can legally send them to school. But, you know, COVID learning loss was, I think, what most people would have logically predicted. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I tend to be like a long, rambling talker, so feel free to, like, jump in at <laughs> any point and shut up and make well, a point. Well, the
2: researchers, the researchers did um, find, though, that it wasn't just about um, you know, closed schools. So, um, you know, they did, uh, they did look at that and, um, you know, so now I can't, uh, I can't, uh, but yeah, school closures are only part of the story. Students fell behind even in places where schools closed very briefly at the start of the pandemic and then reopened for the next few years. Clearly there were other factors at work. Um, test scores declined more in places where, Covid death rate was high. Communities where adults reported feeling more depression and anxiety, um, making uh, so uh, the the kids were or the parents were um, uh, not able to help kids uh, focus on school. Uh, you know, the after school kinds of of work um, curtailed social activities. Um, so, um, uh, also we found the test scores declined. test score declines were smaller in communities with higher voting rates and high census report rates, indicators of what sociologists would call institutional trust. School closures were less harmful in such places.
1: Yeah, I I think a lot of that's fascinating, but I mean, I, I think there are a lot of confounds and proxy effects there. So, I mean, I'm almost totally quant about a lot of stuff like this. Like, I think that the primary predictor variable would be how much time kids spent on academic training. So even in schools that did not close, how much time were you spending adjusting masks in the classroom yes. and watching the teacher ask everyone if they felt OK being back in a public place and having. And, and of course, and this is fair, he- hearing children tell these horror stories about perhaps a lost loved one. Like, sure, that's in there. But also like after school study time. You know, I didn't spend as much time on that in high school as I did trying to play basketball, but it's in an hour a day if you're not a terrible student like did, were parents allowing that? I can't imagine most were. So, I mean, like if you lose your hour to a day of study and you lose half your time in the classroom, you'd see about the learning loss that we saw. And I, d- I don't think that's a coincidence. I, when people say, well, the kids were depressed and alienated, you know, I went to high school, I was depressed and alienated a fair chunk of the time. <laughs> like, you, were, you were in the school, like your, yeah. your girlfriend had to go to class. So like yeah. all this stuff, the, the schools that were shut short term, I noticed a lot of papers also put that in like a less than six months category. The school year is nine months. So, right. I mean, there, there were massive learning loss effects that I, I do think were pretty predictable. And
2: absences were very high. And I think to your point, I think teachers spent and still spend more uh, more time than say ten years ago, um, you know, talking about things that are not academic, doing things really? that are not what we would think of as academic. So, so, so social emotional learning kinds of things, and I think there was a lot, and I know I'm I'm still hearing it even at the college level that we have to be more accommodating because they're so stressed. They're they're so anxious. They're so depressed. They're, you know, they're whatever. So we have to do all this accommodation. And I'm sure that, I mean, we were hearing that all the time, right? It's, oh, COVID, it's, you know, it's so scary for them. And and like you said, adjusting masks and telling kids not to, you know, hang all over each other as kids do. And, you know, so, and absences were just, you know, uh, you know, people just didn't, didn't I think now even you know it's like well can't you just do it online you know can't you just do it in less time you know
1: so. yeah no I, I think that that's that's extremely important i mean so another thing that people forget and i i'd have to check everyone's methods to really make this as a fair critique of the papers i'm not saying it's about like the, the individual authors involved but like another thing that people tend to forget about like the COVID e-schooling era is that most people just didn't go to school yeah, like right. when the schools reopened i mean i won't you know, a huge number of people, I suspect disproportionately with liberal parents, just didn't come back Yeah. Um, when they when things were electronic. I mean, in Louisville, I believe 45 percent of our kids never signed in. Yeah. So, I mean, like if they give you a four hundred dollar laptop and I don't, I don't want to overhype the American slums versus almost anywhere else in the world. But, you know, electricity is somewhat sporadic or your uncle sells it to buy weed. I mean, you're just you're home for a year. So, I yeah. mean, that that was an incredibly idiotic decision that was made. Now, one of the things there, without getting to my COVID writing, is that COVID posed no threat to kids. I mean, the yeah. total number of kids under 18 that died during the entire COVID-19 pandemic first two years was, I think, 689. There's just no way to get around that. And most of those people, I would suspect, were near 18 and morbidly obese. So, the whole there's almost an element of evil to this, where the idea was basically our society is pretty close to being a gerontocracy. The next president's going to be either Trump or Biden. Members of the current elite class didn't want to put themselves at any more risk. And so they essentially said all of these things that you would normally do at a junior or senior high school, like the spring dance, all that's canceled for two years. There was no risk to the kids. There might have been some risk to the parents, but like if you yourself were vulnerable, you could just tell your son to stay home. So, I mean, like, all of this, the whole pretense of, like, we're protecting our young people from Randy Weingarten and so on is just uh, complete nonsense from the start. And now we're, we're kind of seeing the end results of that. To some extent, as a sane society, you have to have a level of pragmatic, aggressive amorality in your leadership class. Like, you can't, I, I'm not kidding at all, I don't think you guys are either. I mean, you, no. you can't shut down all of society to, present a, to prevent a 10% increase in the death rate concentrated among 82-year-olds. That doesn't make any logical sense.
0: And I have a parallel here. Can we, can we do added- a parallel here, though? Because this is important, right? So, so, so essentially, you've got something like COVID, which is genuinely dangerous if you're morbidly obese or very, very old, right? Um, but for the vast majority of the population, it's going to give you something akin to influenza, right? Um, maybe even less than that. A lot of people were asymptomatic or just got a cold. I got a cold. That was it. Um, and the same is of racism, you know, racism is real. You know, if you're in maybe a very rural working class community, maybe in the deep south, it might be a very dangerous thing. Certainly people have been killed. But when you're gonna try and say that it's so dangerous that it pervades the whole of society, in in the one, on the one hand, the people from COVID, they don't wanna go out. They don't want to encounter the world because they're so terrified of getting COVID. And on the other hand, the people who are being lied to about the, the state of racism in the United States don't wanna go out, won't try, won't work hard um won't better themselves because they're over exaggerating the 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 threat of racism i mean is, is there a parallel
1: to be drawn i think there's a parallel to be drawn not just between those two things but to a whole series of trends that we're seeing in society right now right so traditionally the rule in society has to some extent been a hard and cold but very workable one. Since we all have foibles if there's some problem you have that affects almost only you and very few other people it's not a very prevalent social problem that's you could say endemic rather than epidemic perhaps you are expected to take steps to deal with that all of society is not expected to change from a behavioral or psychological perspective to accommodate you we now seem to be shifting away from that so during covid a lot of people said and in kentucky where i live in many of the red states they were completely successful thank god but um A lot of people just said right off the bat, I remember Dr. Phil saying this, why don't, why don't the fighting age men in these communities organize some kind of shopping brigade to help out the older ladies? Like we're not in any danger. Why don't they stay home? And the reaction to that was like, you're consigning grandmothers to the interior of their houses? What if someone in the shopping brigade doesn't wear gloves and one senior dies? And it was just this crazy bullshit for days. People were like shaming you, your grandmother, your granny killer. So but I mean the, the solution was that everyone stay home. I mean it was it's it's completely unworkable that instead of grandmothers staying home and all of us loving on them three times as much everyone does that that's not a practical solution but that is that is what at least in blue cities people did and it's, it's the same thing with all this stuff i mean with racism we it's literally illegal to be racist in the usa i mean the i mean just discriminatory if we're if we're parsing words But i mean the civil rights act of 1964 bans essentially all discrimination in public accommodations in most private venues i mean and it's you can litigate on the basis of that. It is civilly and criminally, in some cases, illegal to discriminate. Since 1967, although this was recently modified at the college level, we've had pro-minority affirmative action. So, of course, when racism occurs, we should expect individual victims to come forward, and then we should all, quote-unquote, ride for them. We should all, and people who commit hate crimes should be arrested so on down the line. But for society to engage, and yes, I noticed both of you guys nodding, no one disagrees. No one's disagreed for 40 years no. in the American <laughs> North. It's not. It's not a thing. You know. When I I was watching Jordan play Bird in the '90s, almost no one was a public racist. This is this idea that we were all living in Selma in 1942. Selma was in Alabama, and that was in 1942. That that's simply not a realistic description of Chicago. Since probably the '50s, that's where I'm from as a founder city. But I mean, the idea that we should all oppose racism in the fashion that we're all agreeing on, of course, quite right. The idea that society should take hysterical punitive steps to eliminate the last residuals of racism i mean where people are being fired from three hundred thousand dollar executive jobs because they sent a racialized text to their buddy 12 years ago this happened to black as well as white guys by the way that's completely insane it's kind of an autoimmune effect but you're right it's, it's part of what we're seeing across these arenas the last one i'll mention though would be Anything you might express in a high school. Do you have a mild, non-fatal nut allergy? Do you believe right. that you're temporarily interested in dating girls rather than boys? Normally, in the second situation, and probably the first, your friend group or teachers would just be like, Oh, shut up about it. I mean, we'll, we'll try to keep <laughs> nuts away from you. I mean, okay, well, that's fine. But, I mean, the idea now is that the school should change. There should be a club set up to accommodate your sexual interest. Almost every junior and senior high school now has a gay-straight alliance. Peanuts can't be served in the building, so on down the line. The question is how much you can shift society to reflect the desires of a very, very small group of people that often dislike the society.
0: So so even your example about peanuts, right? you know, because we have kind of explained how COVID regulations have been damaging. We've explained how racism is damaging often to black people because they expect more structural barriers than actually exist. But even with peanuts, there's fairly good evidence to suggest that peanut allergies or nut allergies in general have skyrocketed. And the most plausible causal factor for that is kids haven't been exposed to nuts because their parents were so terrified of them having a peanut allergy.
1: That's that's extremely, fat. I wasn't aware of that. I'm not surprised by that at all. I knew that with uh, immune system strength in general, that's been declining according to quite, not quite a few, but two or three medical papers that I've read. And the obvious reason is that people aren't in dirty environments. You're not outside playing tackle football in a field with your friends. You and your sister, your brother aren't running around in the woods like picking up bugs and box turtles. So when people encounter the world, the actual planet they get sick because they've been isolated in these interior environments playing gamecube because their parents were worried about them getting sick
0: that's this fragile. Is,
1: last comment actually but this kind of over fragility pops up in places that you wouldn't expect um i wrote an article recently about you know the over hyping of you know porn and gaming and other social problems you know i think there's some negative issues i don't think they're going to destroy society. The article is not really relevant here. But one of the things that I found while writing this that many other people have known for quite a while is that rates of youth sex have reached almost all time lows. So yes. in, kind of the, in the quote unquote decadent era where you can go on any app and hook up with anyone and you can go on your computer and see hardcore pornography and drugs are for sale on the dark net and every high school kid knows that, people are actually terrified of you know two to three of those options depending on gender and are not mm. sleeping together at all. No. Um, yeah. 60, yeah. 60% of 18-year-old high school seniors had never had sex. So it's just like all of this stuff where people try to protect you from the harms of life leads to these incredibly insular people that have never actually kissed a girl or played sports in a field. I mean, it strikes me as quite sad.
0: It's quite evil, but, uh, actually, because yeah. it's, it's, it presents a demographic time bomb for the United States, the UK, all this kind of place. If you're not going out and, you know, we, we get it, okay? Teenage promiscuity can be an issue and it needs to be reined in. Um, But if you're not going out and being a human being, being attracted to people who you're biologically attracted to, you're not gonna develop the kind of skills. Going and hitting on a girl or chatting up a girl or whatever, it's not easy, right? It's something that you need to practice at. And if every single guy who's trying to chat up a girl in a slightly awkward way is called, um, I don't know, a a sex pest or something like that, they're never gonna be able to develop these skills. They're never gonna talk to women. Um, and they're not gonna have kids. And what does that mean for the future of our countries? What does that mean for the future of the UK, the future of the United States? I mean, it's very, very, very dangerous.
1: That's actually the point that I came to in the piece critiquing this idea that we're a spectacularly decadent culture. No, we have a lot of porn and drug buy sites available online, but in terms of actual interactions with people, no, not by the standards of the hippies. My, um, My high school tribe was the rave scene in Chicago. And without going into, like, you know, crude reminiscences on a podcast, I mean, people were definitely aware of how to encounter the opposite sex. Yes. I mean, you go into entire warehouses full of people wearing, you know, bikinis, making out with each other and, like, joyously dancing. So, like, looking at this data was, like, it, utterly shocking to me. But, I mean, these actual trends are extremely common. And I'm not sure there's a point there other than, like, yes, you're right. The the presented... oh. <laughs> The presented narrative, I think, is that we're becoming sort of more mature and decadent at a faster rate. So, I mean, on the right and even on the radical feminist left, you hear constant warnings about youth sex and pornography and the exploitation of women and young men. You know, men's rights activists talk about similar things, the dangers of the military and so on. But in reality, the percentage of people that are actually having sex or even playing varsity sports, or joining the military, all these things are down dramatically the actual interesting visceral experiences of life are becoming rarer and rarer because we've created this entire fake world to protect people. What are kids doing? They're spending a lot of time on social media.
2: And they're I- terrified. Uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, uh, my students won't, they wear their ear things yeah. during the class, right? They don't take them out. Um, they're, they they you know, they don't look at each other when they're walking around, they're just looking at at their phone. So they don't even know how to make eye contact and they don't want to, they're glad to have the phone so that they don't have to make eye contact. And yet then, you know, they complain about anxiety disorders and, you know, being afraid to come to class and being afraid to raise their hand and everything. So, um, so yeah, we, we've, you know, we're perpetuating this fear by protecting people, you know, um, I mean, it's like agoraphobia doesn't start out. You don't just wake up one day and you're afraid to go out, right? (laughs) You know, something bad happens and, and, you know, then you don't go out and nothing bad happens. So you, you know, you overgeneralize. So.
0: um, so... Last question, where is this taking us? Is there any any way we can step back from the abyss?
1: Um, I think so. I mean, one of my this isn't something i've researched professionally but something i've observed over the years as an investor more than anything else really is that every doomsday prediction in recent history has been just wildly false like i mean i remember reading the population bomb in an honors class in high school you know i mean that that clown still talks on television but i mean there are lines in uh, ehrlich's book like it, it looks like it's over for india i believe is the second sentence of chapter two i mean it's India and her millions. And but I mean, you can go through there more seriously to Y2K, you know, peak oil, one, two, three and four, the Western heterosexual AIDS epidemic killer bees and the great northerly migration, the ozone hole, at least we did have to work together to fix that one. But on and on and on down the line, COVID. There was I'm
0: sorry, COVID.
1: Oh, COVID, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, yeah. Well, an example there might not just be COVID itself. But the original predictions like Tom Pueyo's The Hammer and the Dance where he actually ran some pretty solid models and came to the conclusion that COVID could kill 20 million Americans. Well, I mean, any damn thing could happen. But I mean, people kept running with these worst case scenarios. Uh, Neil Ferguson's another one. But I mean, you know, interesting things happened in his life during the pandemic. But I mean, people kept running with these worst case scenarios. Like, what if no one agreed to wear a mask and all the old people were outside playing rugby? And I mean, you get these death counts like three million. And that's what the New York Times would headline with. But yeah, all of these doomsday predictions turned out to be wrong. And they turned out to be wrong in a very specific way. In that they focused on the worst case scenario out of a set of about 12 possible modeling scenarios. And in fact, what turned out to be the case was either the best case scenario or just something in the middle. And by the way, I'm 100% positive that's what we're going to see with climate change as well. Um, there was a discovery made the other day that the trademark name is going to be something like Glisten Paint. But if you just Google white paint, fight climate Oh, game, I
2: saw that. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, there's a new variety of paint, the epoxy paint that's been developed that if you paint your roof, Will apparently deflect a substantial percentage of solar rays it it may this may not be it this may not be the breakthrough not a not a builder but i mean i something like this will be the prediction for climate change from the best scandinavian studies is that over the next 125 years the world will get 2.4 degrees warmer i don't know off hand whether it's fahrenheit or celsius but i mean that that's the prediction that that's not the apocalypse we're gonna paint our roofs someone on twitter said you know in the future it'll be like you know, you see windmills and dikes in the Dutch low country and kids will ask, were those always there? No, this used to be a lake or part of it used to be underwater. Were the roofs always gray? No, no. That's how we beat the, the climate scare, Sun, move along. But that is what's going to happen. We're not all, we're not all just going to, we, there's a seawall building company that I've, I've bought a few shares in. We're not just going to look at the water rising until we die over a century. We're gonna move our wives and husbands inland. I mean, it's, it's the silliest stuff in the world. Look at, look at beachfront real estate prices if you're really worried about this.
0: And the Dutch dealt with that problem in the 19th century, right? Yeah, I believe yeah,
1: before built... that. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the basics, the poems about farmers and little boys, their fingers in the dikes, implying that these might not always have worked that well when there were peasants building them <laughs> in the 1700s. But I mean, these, uh, <laughs> these go back hundreds of years. I mean, the, the low, the low um, region of kind of Mittel Europe was reclaimed centuries ago so and i mean that that's that's a testament to human ingenuity i mean once again if the romans or dutchmen of the 1600s could do this why can't we in the usa or the uk right now well there's no reason we can't the people that are building up this panic don't want a damn solution they want endless panic which pays them i guarantee you that if you set down some shaggy-legged extinction rebellion protester and we're too personal habits don't have anything to do with it who cares (laughs) but i mean if you set them down and were to talk to them if if you were to say look whether it's glisten paint or something else we found a solution to climate change that doesn't require a a shift to capitalism that doesn't require the world to become less or more feminist it doesn't require any dramatic alterations of our current system we can still consume as much as we want to if, if you were given the power, would you spread this solution globally or would you destroy it? I guarantee you they'd destroy it. Like Greta Thunberg would throw the patent for this into the ocean as quickly as she could and go on fear-mongering because the actual goal is this this set of global solutions that will bring about utopia. That That's the idea um, and I reject the idea, but in terms of the actual question, because once again, that was hopefully an entertaining, but it was kind of windy ramble. <laughs> Very. <laughs> the, uh, is there hope? Yeah. I mean, first of all, like, in the case of the USA or China, if the population falls by 80 million, I'm not really an environmentalist, but I don't necessarily think that's a devastatingly bad thing. I mean, I think there are obviously going to be some positive environmental effects of that. You know, then we'll try to rebound again and so on. Um, Also, like, we're not the only people in the world. Like, when I talk to people from now stable, quote-unquote, POC countries like Nigeria, Pakistan, they're actually very brutal about this, like, you know, with CRISPR-style technology you know if we're a few points behind an iq we can edit that out in about 10 years and we're having babies so i mean like that that kind of post-hitler religious taboo we have in the west against that stuff against the kind of stop breeding model of human development that used to be universal they do not have in the upper classes of our rising challengers india nigeria even brazil and all these places people very bluntly discuss the variations of human race and skin tone and so on down the line is iq linked to these what about athleticism so i mean given the genetic tech of 20 years from now and their current birth rate i mean i think that mankind will be around for a long time
0: very good and on that note let's uh, end it there thank you very much that was a lot of fun
1: yeah and greatly greatly enjoyed coming on
0: thank let's you